there are claims that a revival is breaking out at Asbury University in Kentucky. But what does a revival look like? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. At Asbury University, there's a, they're claiming that a ninth revival has broken out in the last hundred years. That it's broken out, I think, on February 8th. That basically what happened is there was one of their usual chapel services. And then after their chapel services, about 20 students stayed behind to continue to worship, which what they mean by that is to continue to sing. And then after a couple hours, the president sent out an email to the whole university saying the revival was breaking out at the chapel and that everybody should go there. So then another 200 or so students show up. And then it continues to grow, continues to get more people there. It gets to the point where they have multiple overflow places where they're, that they're filled with. People start to come in from all over the world. After about 10 days of this, the university then announces that that it's going to give it six more days until I think when we're recording this, it will be tomorrow where they will then curtail it and shut it down. So it's just in the evening that they can do it for people, for the public. Um, The students can still have access to the chapel. So they're saying that this was a revival, like the history of revivals, like the big one that's known about it is in 1970. But is what are the signs of a real revival? How can we tell if this is real or not? So, I mean, I think if you're asking what are the signs of a real revival, I mean, first of all, I mean, I think fundamentally it's a it's a work of the Holy Spirit of God. It, I mean, there has to be a work of the Holy Spirit of God. And I think that's an important place to start because there's a part of it where, I mean, the worship of the people of God is an argument for what it means for the Holy Spirit to be working. You're, you're saying these are the evidences of the Holy Spirit working in our lives if you're a church. And so if you're having a revival, if you're and if and I'm assuming if I revival what we're talking about here is a time where the people of God are being who have maybe drifted away from, from worshiping God as fervent as they should, but where God is calling his people back to him, where he's where he's breathing life back into them in a sense of saying, You've you know, come back to me and repent from your sins and turn from your sins. And that could, that may be associated with people being saved. That may be associated with lots of different specific things, but fundamentally it is it is a work of the Holy Spirit and scripture tells us throughout it what the Holy Spirit does in the world. And so I, mean, I think that's that's where I would start if you're thinking about it is you must be able to take this back and argue that the things going on there is a ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. And I think the language that they're mostly using, although the, the university has a, a page on their website that talks about all the revivals, I think this time the term that they're using is an outpouring, although I'm sure they'll add it to the revival page, but that it's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, it's kind of what you said when we think about revival – and the word revive is used quite frequently in Scripture in the Old Testament. And so people go, oh, revival isn't a scriptural thing. Well, revival is a scriptural thing. Right. And, you know, there's a couple revivals in Scripture that are, you know, really self-evident. You know, at the time of Hezekiah, there's a turning away from sin. And, you know, people come from the northern kingdom into the southern kingdom, and they start to hold the Passover like they've never held it before. There's one at, in, in Nineveh where Jonah preaches where they repent. Now, they're wiped out 100 years later because their repentance doesn't, like, produce that fruit or it doesn't continue on. But, you know, the one that you really see it, obviously, is Pentecost, which is Acts 2, 38 through 41. 
Then Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so this is what I think most people, when they use the term revival, they're, they're talking about what, what happened at Pentecost. And obviously Pentecost is something that is, in one sense, in one way, different than what's going to happen at other places. And in other ways, it's a picture of what it's a picture of what will happen in other places. I mean, so you're not going to necessarily have tongues of fire. You're not going to necessarily have – I mean, there it was, it was obviously something of, of significance, like in the sense of there were signs associated with it. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit being poured out and we're – I mean, we're – where he's saying this is like Joel, what was happening and what was promised in Joel wasn't something that would necessarily just happen in one time in one place. It was that God was going to pour out his spirit on his people. And this does happen at different times. I mean, like, you know, there's the Great Awakening in history where you can look at and see there were there have been revivals like in American history. There have been, and one of the things that the church has to argue over at times, there are things that are called revivals that aren't really revivals. There are other things that, that people don't realize were revivals that were revivals. And so there's a part of it where, I mean, it's it's very easy when you think about it, it's very easy for people to paint things as revivals that really aren't the work of the Holy Spirit. It's very easy for people to overlook the actual working of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. As, as Americans, this is particularly difficult for us to sort through because we have called so many things. We, we sort of have a tradition of revivals. I mean, Asbury University is nothing special in that sense. I mean, this is just a kind of an American expression of Christianity. Oh, they are kind of a – they have a bigger reputation than most places. But do. as opposed to the rest of the world, you know, right. this is something that Americans do. We have revivals. We we schedule tent revivals, for example. Right. And and we so, – so that word revival carries with it this baggage. It carries the baggage of the first great awakening and the second great awakening, which are very different sorts of experiences and a lot of what – we call revivals now sort of stems from this second great awakening style of revival or, you know, as Ian Murray called it in his book, you know, revival and revivalism, you know, right. it's sort of this ginned up thing. That's really a work of man and not the work of a Holy spirit, but it masquerades as a work of a Holy spirit because it's very emotional driven. And a lot of times they're mixed. Like if you look at the Second Great Awakening, I think if you look at the Second Great Awakening, it seems like there was a movement of God in the South. And then by the time they, a lot of people copied it, they emulated it. And so by the time you get to the big part, which is in the North, in the Northwest in particular, it probably isn't, you see no evidence that it's a movement of God at all. But it doesn't mean that there weren't some people there that were revived and then a lot of people started to imitate the revival. And I think that's pretty common in the United States, is that you might actually have a work of the Holy Spirit and move in, in a handful of people or a number of people. And then a lot of people want to emulate it and they want to pretend like they're joining in with it. And so they go have this experience because they want the emotionalism of it. And so sometimes it does have a core of truth to it, but then it becomes false because you have a lot of people that are just pretending because they want the feeling. They want the emotion. And it's and what you're talking about, I mean, so I you know, I grew up Baptist church, I grew up 
going to, you know, sometimes, like you said, they would have tent revivals. Sometimes they would, you know, they would bring sawdust out and put sawdust out because there were, you know, old revivals where they used to have sawdust floor, you know. And so there was, there were these almost cargo cult elements to this idea of if we, if we emulate this form, somebody at some point had seen what looked like an outpouring of the Spirit of God, and they said it happened in, in a setting like this. So if we recreate that setting, then God will come down again and be among us. And so there's part of it where you can see people trying to, like, recreate the conditions for, like, lightning to strike. You know, like they're trying to call down power from heaven. And then at the same time, it's not the way the Holy Spirit moves is God is worshipped in spirit and in truth. And it's not wrong for a church to say we're going to continue to – we're going to ask God to – we believe we need to be revived. We believe there needs to be repentance. And it's not wrong for someone to – for a church to seek that. But those are two very different things, even though if you just described it, you could say, well, they're both trying to seek a movement of God. One is seeking it through emotionalism and through almost an almost pagan form of seeking after God. And the other is saying, how does God say he should be sought after? And what are the, what are the means by which God has given us to seek after him and to walk in his spirit? Cause, you know, I mean, like you have uh, things that had been not, not really core to the revival, like meeting outside. Well, they were uh, they started meeting outside because either the church wouldn't let them meet inside, or there were too many people for the church. Right. You know that in the in a true revival, what seems to be a true revival, that's what happened. And then people come along later, like, well, you know, let's meet outside. It will be like the old days when we had a revival. And you know what? If it's in a different location, it helps manipulate people, make them feel like there's something going on, even if there isn't. Right. And so it, you know, it becomes. Something that originally had a very practical purpose then gets made into something that's just manipulative. But one thing that that I think is like core to it, especially when you look at the word revive in the Old Testament where it's used, is it's it's very associated with knowledge. It's not like separate from the knowledge, right? So when, when George Whitfield comes and he starts to preach, which is considered the trigger, him or Jonathan Edwards, which is triggered considered the trigger for the Great Awakening. It's really the idea of you think you can be saved without the Holy Spirit. And it's very much the new light. It's this idea that you actually have to be born again. And that's a new idea in the colonies that's being preached. Now, it's an old idea, but nobody was putting any emphasis on it. What they were putting emphasis on was an, an intellectual assent to the things of God and saying that produced salvation. So George Whitfield comes along and says, no, you must be born again. And that causes the Great Awakening. And so we want to separate revival from knowledge. And the Bible doesn't really allow that. The, most, the place where revive is used the most in the Old Testament, in the Bible, it's not really used in the New Testament, is by far and away Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is all about the Word of God. Like Psalm 119, 35 through 39. Made me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and do not and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach which I dread, for your judgments are good. So David, when he's talking about revival, he's always saying, Go to the word. Right? Establish your word to your servant. That's how you're revived. Right. By the renewing of your mind in a sense. By renewing of your mind, by by reading the word, seeing the things that you're failing to do, that causes you conviction of sin, and you, we shouldn't think of the spirit moving absent of the word. 
Now, obviously, the Spirit can move absent of the Word. The Spirit blows where it wills. But when the Spirit moves, it drives you to His Word. Right. And then, so if you ask the question at the beginning, how do you identify what's a true revival? Psalm 119 is not a bad place to go right. because you can say, well, it's it's the work of the Holy Spirit on individual hearts, but it's going to have some practical outworkings. Well, what are they? Well, you should see people who are walking in the commandments of God. You should see people who are turning from their sins, like covetousness. You should see people who turn themselves away from worthless things. Um, you and know, turn to the Word. Right? right, and who are then devoted to fearing God, um, you know, who call the judgments of God good. So, you know, these are the sorts of external things that you could look at and say, okay— hey, the Holy Spirit might actually be working in this because there's these kinds of things, this set of, of behaviors that we would say is holiness or piety, that this is the sort of thing that happens as a result of a true revival. And that turning from sin ends up being that you're turning towards workers of righteousness, that you're, you know, that you're not just going, I'm going to not do this sinful act, but you're going to then go and say, what should I be doing with my time and with my life? And, you know, I mean, that there's actual turning to righteousness. And when Jonathan Edwards is looking and saying, why does he believe revival is breaking out? I mean, people are singing psalms in the streets. I mean, there is a real focus on God's word and saying, what does God tell us to do? And we just, you know, now we want that, that all of a sudden we sing with more zeal. We have this warmer feel, feeling, all these things that that's not what revival looks like. And you can't understand what revival looks like without understanding what the Holy Spirit was sent to do, which is John 16, 13 through 15. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said to you that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So when we think of the Holy Spirit coming, he comes so that he declares who Christ is. So you can't look at the, say, oh, there's a movement of the Holy Spirit without it being associated with knowledge because the reason Christ sent the Holy Spirit, yes, he convicts us of sin and other things, but all that is for the glory of Christ because he comes to declare it for his glory, for Christ's glory. And it's about knowledge and about the words that Christ has spoken and take the things that God has given to Christ, that Christ gives to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit then gives to the people. So the movement of the Holy Spirit, you just can't separate it from the glorification of Christ. You can't separate it from the glorification of his word. If it's a real revival, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He produces in you a love for his word. And let's be clear, when you're saying with knowledge and the glorification of Christ, what you're talking about is it's like when your pastor preaches a sermon and you realize that something you are doing in your life is a sin that you have been ignoring and you've been allowing to grow. And you say, so I need to go and I need to, I need to do these things to put this sin to death. I need to make these changes to deal with this. It's not like knowledge like in the sense right. of just this, oh, I have this new knowledge of God. And this also separates it from just going, I have this feeling of being closer to God. I mean – in doing that, you may very well feel closer to God, but if you're feeling closer to God or your knowledge of God is separate from you putting sin to death, that's not true knowledge of God. Knowledge of God always, I mean, what Jesus Christ came to do was destroy the works of the devil. So knowledge of Christ and of his work will cause the works of the devil to be put to death. And if you, 
if he is your Lord and you truly know more about him, then that has to change your behavior, right? right. Those two, can't, those are inseparable. And he's giving you that knowledge not so that you can glorify yourself, not to say, oh, I feel such peace, that I feel such serenity, that I feel like I'm transcendent, which are right. the words that are used at, the, you know, at Asbury University about this stuff. What it is is you go, I'm going to glorify Christ more. I'm going to do things to declare how great Christ is. It moves it from being about you to being about God. And a lot of the things that I'm hearing from there, it's more about, I want to have this feeling. I want to feel good about this. I want this warm feeling. I want to feel like I'm safe. I want to, instead of saying, I want to bring glory to Christ. So you just read from the New Testament, but again, if you go back to the Psalms, the the expectation in the Old Testament wasn't any different. Say Psalm 71, starting in verse 20. You who have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side, and with a lute I will praise you. And your faithfulness, O my God, to you I will sing with the harp, O Holy One of Israel. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you, and my soul, which you have redeemed. My tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought to shame who seek my hurt. So again, it's like you, you say, look up the word revive, do a concordance search. Here's one of your hits on it. And what is the, the, the expectation that happens? Well, there's an increase in knowledge, but it's an increase in knowledge that provokes a particular kind of attitude toward God. It's not just—I mean, it's very emotional. We, you know, we're, we're good reform folks, so we'd like to ignore emotions, and that can't be the case. And so that's why we might be suspicious of somebody talking about revival. But— but this kind of revival is a very emotional sort of thing mm-hmm. that, that David's writing about here. But it's not emotion devoid of any kind of other content. It's emotion that is directed towards knowledge of God, the Holy One of Israel, and then praising God for the things that he has done. It's yeah, emotion that's caused Praising his righteousness, right? I mean, it's specifically it says, you know, my tongue shall talk of your righteousness all the day long. And so it's about declaring who God is. It's about, which is directly connected to praise, right? Because if we're just praising him because what he did for us, well, there's lots of unbelievers that praise their God for what he did for them. I mean, what our duty is to praise God for who he is, for his righteousness, for the things that he has done, and not just praise him for the sake of praising him, but it has to be about his character and about knowledge of him. And so so true revival drives us to speak about who God is and not just speak in general terms of he makes me peaceful. Earlier you used the phrase, the spirit blows where it will. And I mean, it, it is important when we talk about revival that to say that in a sense, revivals are not necessarily predictable and they're not necessarily tidy. The, there's nothing tidy about the revival that's happening there in Acts 2. You, you have a whole bunch of people who start speaking in tongues and, and everyone's understanding them and and then you have other things that I would say later in Acts, we, we would call revivals, and they're the sort of things where the Jews are all sitting around saying, whoa, the Holy Spirit has come on the Gentiles too. Okay. I mean, and they, they accept it, but it wasn't anything that anybody was anticipating. They should have anticipated it. Right, Jesus told them clear. it was going to happen. <laughs> the Old Testament says it's going to happen. But in the moment, you know, the good religious folks were not expecting that, oh, this is the way that the Holy Spirit's going to work. 
and this isn't the timing we were expecting the Holy Spirit to, to have. Um, so, so revivals can be unpredictable. They can be, they can look messy in that sense. There, there's that element of they're happening outside. They're not happening in the walls of the church for reasons. And but sorry, and it gets pretty messy in Acts. You have people who are probably quote-unquote converts from the revival getting struck dead, you know, Ananias and Sapphira. You have, you know, uh, you know Simon the, the magician, you know, being sent away, saying you're not seeking the things of God. You know, you have uh, the, the sons, the, you know, de- demon possession, you know, manifesting itself right in front of them. So, you know, it, it's things that if you're having a strict standard saying everything happening here must be godly, well, that, that's going too far because that's not what you see in in these in, in acts but the true revival like at cornelius's house that you were talking about i mean that that starts with knowledge and specifically right it starts with the 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 carpet coming down or whatever it is that the sheet coming the sheet, down yeah. from heaven three times and then peter goes now i understand salvation came to the gentiles right i mean when god says kill and eat all of a sudden peter connects that to the gentiles are being brought into the kingdom and then he goes to the gentiles and then you know, it continues when he goes back to Jerusalem and says, hey, you know, and so it's this this knowledge and this correction that God is doing that is very associated with the revival. In Acts 2, you know, <laughs> Peter's going, you thought he was just a man. He was the Messiah that you killed, right? He killed so the it's, Christ. It's, it's very much the, the association with knowledge and that God is pouring out knowledge at the same time. And so, you know, we just want to disassociate with knowledge. And God is like, when when you see this in Scripture, there's like a correction of that the church, the people of God, are missing something that God's going, pay attention to this. You know, Hezekiah, they find the lost book of the law, right? I mean, this is what revival usually looks like. And I think, I mean, when you say, I mean, you know, you use the word, it's not necessarily tidy, and you use the word that it can be messy. And, I mean, the, the word, the, the spirit blows where it will, what we're kind of emphasizing in that is, the actions going on are being driven by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the one who is calling the shots. I mean, in the sense of he's the one who is the one causing these things to happen. You know, like when, when Paul, when a former murderer and persecutor of the church, ends up becoming one of the apostles, the church wasn't sitting there going, hey, I think what's going to happen is, is this, you know what I mean? I mean, but the Holy Spirit caused this to happen. And But none of these things are inconsistent with what Jesus Christ said he was going to send the Holy Spirit to do in the world. And you read previously from John 16, but in John 16, 7 through 11, this is what Jesus said. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so there's this part of where, I mean, this is the Holy Spirit has been sent into the world to cause these things to happen. And these things, I mean, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about how the kingdom of God has been advancing. And there are times where God advances himself by pouring out his spirit in localized ways and causing a revival of his church, and it's associated with the church repenting. And so it's just really important to remember that these things are not, these things are not incongruous at all with the work of Christ, with the mission of Christ. In fact, 
they are very much in line with that. And so anybody who's claiming anything that doesn't conform to this, that's, you know, you can say it can get messy in a certain way, but you should also look at it and go, you also know there are some boundaries on what ways it will get messy because the Holy Spirit is driving it and he doesn't drive it to certain places. This is basically Jesus giving the the job description of the Holy Spirit. Here's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. It's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And and I would say, you can say this: the Holy Spirit has his normal everyday activities in which he does this. And then, you know, we're talking about revivals, which are special acts of the Holy Spirit, something that's happening particularly acutely at a given time and place. And But when you say that it's happening that way, you shouldn't expect that what's happening there is in any way inconsistent with the basic description that Jesus gives for here's what the Holy Spirit does. So when you look at anything that's calling itself a revival, whether it's in Kentucky or anywhere else, is it something where there's been conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness, and conviction of judgment? That's what Jesus says to look for right. when you're looking for the work of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if there's other problems, problematic things happening, are they core to what's happening? Or are they, you know, false right. shepherds, you know, goats, you know, interjecting themselves into that because they see what's happening and want to latch onto that or even want right. that? But is there a core that's not that, that actually is marked by... You know the work, the the characteristics that we see are the work of the spirit. And I think you know you look at something like Asbury, where how many you know thousands of people have gone there. When you look at that, it's I think you have to step back and say it's not knowable, right? You can look at the general tenor of it and go, "There's real problems here," but that doesn't mean that there weren't people there that that have really been convicted of sin, that have been convicted of judgment. That, that understand the righteousness of God that grew in these things. I see a lot of the things that I went on there, and I would expect that if that happened for some people, they'd leave. But they may have left, and we wouldn't know about it. So right. God could have revived certain people, and it doesn't mean that it's not a revival. But at the same time, a lot of the things that went on there indicate that a lot of the people are not being revived. And, you know, it could be a revival for— one person it could be a revival for one percent of the people ten percent but you know if you're saying that you know the event is a revival well it it seems like there should be at least a period where it is you know a lot of people a high percentage of the people are having a genuine you know movement and when you go when you go back to the first revival we talked about at acts 2 at pentecost or the, the first significant new testament one well, you see what happens that one day, and there's 3,000 that are added to their number that day. But then you keep reading through there in Acts 2, and you find out what happens is there's a whole culture of the church that develops out of that, where they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You know, so that's the follow-up from that. Okay, true revival happened there, and there's, there's long-term effects from that. Do, we don't know if that's the long-term effect from Asbury because it's happening now. Right, but there's the suspicious part of it, which is there's no knowledge, there's yes. no teaching, there's no instruction, which yeah, they started by desiring to go to apostolic teachings, and that's not the case of what I've seen there. Generally, doesn't mean that there aren't specific individuals. And, yeah, and I, you know, with some of the stories I was reading about it, it sort of it started with one particular individual confessing personal sin. Okay, I mean, that that's something Jesus says, this is a sign of the Holy Spirit, or a potential sign of the Holy Spirit. 
good sign. On the other hand, you have the LGBT community that is very much in favor of what's going on there. That's not a great sign. The Roman Catholics are you know, sending their, their people there. Their too, intention to... with each other. So it's like it's by itself, it's messy. I mean, and this is this is part of it is the church is to be discerning during this. I mean, and, and like you said, if there's somebody there and they have an awareness of sin and they start to repent of that sin, like you said, they may look around and go, there are things that are starting to happen here that I shouldn't stay here for these things. That's we, – we, when we think about a work of the Holy Spirit, I think a lot of times people always think of miraculous things. And what Scripture says is the work <laughs> of the Holy Spirit. They truth. Right, is what right. And, so, they, and so that's, that's this part where people go, there's this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's got to be this, this full of signs. And the truth is, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit causes you to, to walk in holiness. It causes you to walk closer to God. And, those, and so when you're looking at things, you should be asking yourself, is that what I'm seeing? Is that what I'm seeing around me? Is this what I'm – and don't call things that aren't that the working of the Holy Spirit. And I think what we need to – yeah, we'll probably talk about this more later. But one of the things that's really crucial to understand is if what you're going is, I need to see a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, that's a really serious problem. That's a really serious problem because the Holy Spirit tells how he acts. You read his word, and he convicts you of sin, and he cleanses you, and he sanctifies you, and he promises to do this for every single person that he saves. He will conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. He is cleansing you. He is sanctifying you. And so if you're going, I need to see a miraculous thing, we want to go, oh, yeah, this is this is a wonderful thing. We should be wanting to see this miraculous thing instead of, does that mean that the people don't normally have the work of the Holy Spirit, that right. they have to want to see a sign and a wonder? I mean, God actually, Jesus Christ actually says to the Jews, you want to see a sign and a wonder. You're a wicked and adulterous generation. Right. He doesn't say you should be looking for a revival, which is different than the revival like you look at the Great Awakening. And, yes, there was emotionalism. There was at certain times, and I'm not saying God doesn't pour it out, but a lot of it was just – a dramatic increase in teaching, a dramatic increase in correction of errors in the church that goes on for 20 years. It's not like, yes, in certain places, it's, you know, Newbury, Connecticut, it's like, you know, in a week or something. But in most places, it's people come, they hear the word, they hear that God's doing something someplace else, and that all of a sudden this church that looked dead is now alive, and they go, what what changed? They go, oh, these doctrines changed. And, and it's not this, it's not what's portrayed later. It really is that people are going, this is what God's Word says, we need to start obeying it. I mean, again, the pattern of this is you can go back to the Psalms, get another hit on Revive, go to Psalm 85. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. I mean, the, the pattern's here. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. So there's this whole structure. I mean, this is kind of, you, if you want to see what a revival looks like, it's here in four verses in the Psalms. It starts with this restore us, God. You know, don't be angry with us. There's when When you're saying God's angry with you, there's a recognition that there's sin that's between you and God. Right. And that God is righteous in his anger towards you. And so, well, what do you need? You need revival. You need God to revive you. 
and that could be individual, personal, small, could be big. And then, you know, so what is the shape of revival? It's that your people rejoice in you. It's that God shows mercy on you, that God grants salvation. It's that you hear what God says that because he's speaking peace to his people. And then, you know, the last section there, and then not turning back to the folly, not turning back to the sin. I mean, it's kind of all there, beginning, middle, end. And when you look in the Old Testament for most of the places revive is used, it's actually used individually. Right, most of them are in Psalm one nineteen. So it's David saying, "Revive me with your word. Revive me with your word." But here, it's very much collective in Psalm eighty five. And the sign of the group is, "And grant us your salvation." And so, one of the things that you would expect if God is actually moving with a group rather than with an individual, and we should first of all think most revival is individual, because that's where the focus of the scripture is actually is on individual. You know, revive me. You know. Open my eyes to your word. Let me see what's in your law. Turn me towards righteousness. It's very much, you know, you read the word and God revives you. But in the cases where it's it's talking to a group like the people of God, the expectation is that people will come to salvation, that unbelievers will become believers. And so in the way you would tell that is that you see fruit in their lives, which takes time to see. But I don't even see... What I've seen from it, and I haven't like watched all of it, obviously, since it's you know hundreds of hours at this point, but I'm not seeing a lot of professions of faith. These are people that say they're already believers that are coming, and you're not seeing, which is kind of different than what most people think of with the revival. When we think of other revivals, and this would almost even be a big difference between like the revival in Acts 2 at Pentecost and the revival at Cornelius' house. Is at Cornelius' house, when Peter shows up there and the Holy Spirit's poured out, most of these people are already saying that they're following God sure. among the Gentiles. But in Acts 2, none of them are, right? I mean, or at he's least preaching they have to. A testimony that they, they at least were. have a testimony that they were. Because, you know, the Jews were saying they were, but. Right. But the Jews, clearly, Christ, or Peter says, you killed the Christ. I mean, he's it directly them accusing men, them. And then it talks, right, that they're devout men in Israel, and then he says, you killed the Christ, right? So and then they, and he basically says that you have to repent and believe and right. to be saved. And so that's normally what you would expect to see in a revival. Now, it could be that you don't see people coming to salvation where they already have a testimony, but you still see a huge leap forward in knowledge. Obviously, when the Holy Spirit is poured out at Cornelius's house, and so they are very different, right? They're being potentially saved under the old covenant to being saved in the new covenant, with the Holy Spirit being poured out. And so, when we see revivals, it's normal for people who are even saved to be going, "Am I really saved?" Because when the whole, when you see the holiness of God, the holiness of God, if you're not, if you're being convicted of sin, is not go, "Oh yeah, I'm sure I'm saved." It's to go, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not right with you. I see you for as holy as you are and even that conviction of sin. And what I see at Asbury is a lot more, oh, this is wonderful. This proves where we are with God. I mean, so I want to go back because something you said earlier is you're talking about a lot of times revivals are individual. And I think you're making a distinction between just normal sanctification and revival. 
I mean, like, even at the individual level. There's, I mean, revival's not just, there's a process of sanctification. This would be tied, because in the end, what you're, this, would be, this would always be tied towards maybe a more significant repentance of sin in your life. We are talking about so this would, I would think which it's is why you're God tying opens it to, your eyes up to, and I'm really tying it to Psalm 119 because that's where it's used the most, right? So I'm not like making this up. This is like based on the scripture, and David is repeatedly going, basically, open my eyes to your word, and so the we should be thinking of revival when you read something and you go, I've been doing that and I thought it was fine, and now I realize that's sin against God and I need to repent. And see that, so that's why I think you're tying it towards assurance of salvation in a sense. Because in the end, what when you read, you know, if you read the Confession on Assurance of Salvation, one of the things that impacted by Assurance of Salvation is the presence of sin in your life. When there's right. abiding sin in your life, when there's sin that you've been giving into, that affects your the ability of you to say, "I've been walking in the Spirit," and so, and it should cause you to go work. It should cause you to work out your salvation and in, in fear should of repentance, cause right? fear and trembling, right? And so, I mean, so there's this part of it where I mean, I see. I think I mean and I think there's a part of it where an American I you know we've an American Christianity we've adopt where, where David's talking where David's talking about repenting and talking about coming back to God we've kind of have this idea that like I think it with my children there are times where I'll talk to them you know they'll they'll be frustrating me and causing problems and sinning and the way I the way they resolve my anger with me is they come back to me and they cry and apologize but they don't stop they don't turn from the thing that was causing the problem. And you can see in that verse where he's saying at the end, it's let us not go back to our folly, right? I mean, it's right. let us turn away from our folly. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, within the Christian life, we have this idea that we don't actually have to repent from sin to come back to God. That we can come back to God through our emotions, not through repentance. And so, I mean, I think, I mean, when you look at our view of revival, it's that's part of our problem is we believe that emotion, not just that emotionalism is good, but that emotionalism is the way to come back to God. Right. As opposed to true knowledge, true understanding, true application in your life of that knowledge. And when you do that, when you actually are convicted of sin, which is what that process is, because it's not just convicted of sin like, oh, I feel guilty, and then I keep going and doing it. That's not really conviction of sin. That's just knowledge of sin. Right. which is different when you really have conviction of sin of course it shakes your your understanding of who god is it's not oh i'm a great christian and we what i'm seeing in the revivals all the modern revivals not even just that that you know that uh you know in the book of revival and revivalism the uh, the idea of revivalism is that you're getting all this comfort from god without conviction of sin but that's not how god works he convicts us of sin, he turns us from our sin, and then we get the peaceable fruits of righteousness, and we get the comfort. The comfort comes from turning from sin, not just some spiritual feeling. Because it's, it's repentance, not just conviction as well. Right, it's conviction, and convic- true conviction of sin will lead to true repentance, and true repentance will lead to a different lifestyle, which will lead to the peace. And in Asbury, they're going, oh, we have such peace with God, and that you walk into this place and you're so filled with peace— it's just very disturbing to me because if you're in the presence of God, that's not how Moses responded. 
that's not how Peter and Paul, or excuse me, Peter and John responded on the Mount of Transfiguration. They didn't go, oh, we're just filled with peace. We're, we're transcending nature because we're saying the holiness of God. No, they more tremble and fall down on their face. That's, that's, that's the biblical response to seeing the movement of God. And the modern revivalism view is that you get this sense of a warm hug that just holds you, and yo, you're so close to God. I'm sorry, that's just not that's just not very scriptural. I mean, I think another part of it is is in, is what kind of I'm building. I think kind of going back to what I was talking about with kind of my children. If you look back in Psalm 85, it talks about where he says, "Will you continue to be angry with us?" I think we have an idea that a God can't be angry with the sin in a Christian's life. That when he looks at a Christian, all he can see is Jesus Christ, and so he can't be he can't be angry with you in your sin. And I mean, I mean, actually, and I think that's actually a big. I think there's a pretty significant aspect of Christianity that kind of teaches that idea that God can't have anger towards you and towards your sin. And while well, I mean, he all he can do is look at you and just love you, right? As opposed to Hebrews twelve is extreme, extremely clear right he scourges every child he receives now that doesn't mean that it's that's because he lost his temper or something right that means that that his love is very painful that's what i mean i think the idea of like the uh, the idea that i could have be angry with my children's sin people would think i have to lose my temper to be angry with them and so there's this i mean that's what i mean i think we have this wrong idea of righteous anger towards sin right and i think that's just that's something that needs to be dealt with within our theology. But the Holy Spirit was sent to convict of sin. Right. And so all of a sudden we're saying that the movement of the Holy Spirit can happen and everybody just feels how wonderful they are, even as they embrace sodomy, even as they embrace false doctrines, even as they embrace all these things that are clearly things that if the Spirit is there, he will convict them of. If the Spirit's moving, they should expect conviction of. And you don't see a whole lot of conviction of that. What you mostly see is wow, there's such peace here. And I'm thinking, why is there peace here? <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's not a hopeful sign because in a true revival, it is messy and, and people are going, man and brethren, what should we do? Right. They're not just going, oh, I feel at such peace with God. Peace in Scripture is the fruit of righteousness. Right. It's not independent of that. And causes divisions among you. Breaks down the divisions between you and God. Right. And puts up divisions between you and those who will and, not separate themselves from sin. Who won't separate revealed. themselves from their sin. Yeah. Right. So Psalm 143 is another place that talks about revival. And you know, verse 10 starts with, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And it's not deliver him out of trouble, it's bring his soul out of trouble. It's teach me to do your will. It's real revival is a turning from sin, right? The Holy Spirit, as we read before, it it was sent to convict of sin. And so when the Spirit moves, he teaches you to do his will, and he causes you to do his will, for he is God. And and he's not sent and is ineffectual in the reason for which he's sent. So in some cases, I, I think it will become more evident over time, although it has already been 15 days or something. 
but it will be more evident over time whether there is a real change in the university. There wasn't previously, so since they seem to schedule them every like 15 years in February, you know, it starts to make me suspicious about how much there will be here, but maybe it will be, but, you know, I don't see a whole lot of people saying that I've been convicted to do your will. They say I'm convicted to worship you, to sing, which is what they mean by worship. And the change would be pretty substantial because I think a lot of people aren't talking about that. I mean, the university is that. It isn't just Christian university. It's Wesleyan holiness saying, you know, sinless perfectionism, that it's possible for Christians to get to a state where they no longer sin, which is something that there's not a lot of things that – the Bible says, if you say this, you're not a Christian. And that's one in First John. If you say you have no sin, the truth does not abide in you. So when, the, you know, that's something that they're pushing as their, you know, one of their core doctrines, that this is possible. And uh, you assume that those people in the leadership are probably those people who are saying we have reached the state where we don't sin anymore. That's a pretty serious thing. So, you know, it's, you know, that's, I mean, it's heresy. How would people be treating this differently if this was happening at, like, a Jehovah's Witness, uh, you know, college? Would they be treating it in the same way? And, and, I'm not, and I don't know what the people's – how common that is to say that people have reached that, you know, in those churches. But it's, it's a pretty serious thing. And if it's a true revival where, you know, a, lo- a large percentage of the people at that college were participating in this, were experiencing a true work of the Spirit – You'd expect a turning from this thing that is clearly against Scripture. Even if they only thought there was one person at the college that had attained it and they all believed that's something you could attain, that's still kind of a problem. <laughs> it's still a huge heresy, and it's, right. still a, it's, it's still this belief that you don't need God. You don't really need him because in the end you can do the work so that you turn from your sin and you remove all your sin. You can be cleansed in this life. The doctrine and that sinless perfectionism is driven from the whole thing, idea of whosoever will. It's an extre- it's, it's actually – I started to say extreme, and that's the wrong thing. It is actually consistently thought out of the doctrine of whosoever will because the doctrine of whosoever will is based on the idea if God told you to come to him, if he tells you to repent – then he must give you the ability to repent. And he tells you, he commands you to be perfect as he is perfect, so therefore you must have the ability, which means it's your work and not God's. I mean, and so that is the basis of it. It's the logical conclusion. It's the logical conclusion of Arminianism. And so Wesley thought it out. Yeah, you got to give points to John Wesley. He thought it out. This is where Arminianism ends. It ends with sinless perfectionism every time that you actually want to take the doctrines and take the words and use the meanings that they have. And there's a lot of people who don't think it out, but this if is, you think it out. a lot of Arminians aren't, aren't even close to being 100% Arminians, right? I mean, a lot of people who call themselves Arminians, they only hold the, this little, you know, they hold these different pieces of it. So, I mean, that's, Wesley was much closer to being a. He, he worked it out and he was, a, right. he was thinking it through and he was logically building his argument to understand things right. and you're Charles like Finney, which is another a big revival well, now he that. said that he had been without sin for 13 years right, so he's he, even worse right I said john wesley said didn't he say there he didn't say that he, he said he never attained it. it okay but but finney said that he had attained it for 13 years in his autobiography when he wrote it but then, did it and then he blew it when he wrote that line no, <laughs> right. he blew I mean, it well it before also, that it also involves a complete redefinition of sin because for someone to say that they go days, weeks, months, years without sinning, well, all that sin that they're doing, they're now saying that's okay. In fact, that's good. What I was doing was good, you know. Cause it was holy. It was being like what Christ would have done. 
And that's a really that that just shows the Holy Spirit comes to show us who Christ is and what he said. And the person who goes, yeah, I'm, I'm sinless or that I haven't sinned for a day or I haven't sinned for an hour, that the person who's saying that, they obviously don't understand the holiness of Christ at all. I mean, it's just so far from them. And so, you know, a revival is about teaching me to do your will. And the person who's saying you can receive, you, know, you can reach the point of sinless perfectionism, how do you say that, they've, that Christ has taught you anything through his spirit? I mean, the other thing is, is that the Holy Spirit leads us to truth. Right, he's called the Spirit of Truth. That's right. one of his names. And so, like, Psalm one nineteen twenty four through twenty seven says, "Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have declared my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So shall I meditate on your wonderful works." And so all of this, I mean, this is tying together both, like you were talking about, it's tying together salvation and with, and then following salvation with knowledge of God and who God is and the truth of God and all the different, and the different, you know, the different aspects of the truth of God that he gives us, whether it's talking about statutes or precepts or his works or his, you know, the, or just his words that he gives you, all of these different things is the truth that God leads us to so that we might know him and serve him and, and follow after his ways. And, I mean, it's saying, revive me according to your word. And so often what you see in these quote-unquote revivals is, I mean, like at Asbury, there's like no preaching, right? It's all testimonies. It's all singing. It's all prayer. There's like no teaching, very little at least. I thought there was one sermon every day. There might be one sermon every day. Okay. But compared to the 24 hours a day, right? it's, it's – and it's a sermon by a student. It's not like a prepared sermon from what I understand. I mean, anything that anybody that's doing anything, it's supposed to be ad hoc. It's just supposed to be the movement of the Spirit because the Spirit doesn't work through preparation. He just works out of the moment type thing. But that's like so contrary to what David's saying, right? I mean, that whole view is so contrary to what David's saying. They're saying at Asbury, and, it, like, so, and I, we're using that as an example, but this is the typical quote-unquote revival. It's the revival, you know, the tent meeting that, that churches have all over the place. I mean, a Pentecostal went there and went, oh, yeah, I, this, I've seen this a hundred times before. I see this every time that we have a revival at our church, right? It's the same thing. It's you, instead of appealing to truth, you appeal to emotion. It's really important for people to understand that, yes, emotion should be associated with worship. But emotion's supposed to be driven by truth, not the other way around, where we go, this must be true, this must be the movement of the Spirit, this must be who the Spirit is because I have this warm emotional feel. It's that you see the awe of God, you see the power of God, you see the magnificence of God, you see his majesty, and you're terrified, right? And you're, you fall down before him, and you tremble, and you see him for who he is, and yes, that the fact that he would show you mercy, that causes you to cry out, that causes you to weep, that causes you to, to have an emotional response. But to have the emotional response without the truth becomes a very dangerous thing. Again, go back to Pentecost. After Peter tells them, you crucified the Christ, they have a very emotional response to that. The, the text even says that they're cut to the heart. Right. But it's not a warm emotional response. <laughs> it's a oh my goodness, we commit a terrible sin, what must we do? Right. And that's the, that's the way that emotion starts, at least, in that kind of revival. If it, 
I mean, hey, look at what the Holy Spirit's supposed to do, convict of sin, righteousness, judgment. And when the Holy Spirit's convicting you of sin, especially serious sin, um, for which you would expect a, a commensurate amount of revival, it's going to be emotional, but don't expect it to necessarily be pleasantly emotional. I mean, right. one of the things we, we did an episode on emotion, and one of the things we talk about in that episode is when you start with emotion, what happens is is you think through using that emotion. So, like, if I get angry, what happens is, is I'm saying my anger is the most important thing. So all of my thoughts are driven through satisfying my anger. And so if I'm angry about whatever happened, then all of my I – mean, I've decided that my anger is the most important thing, and that will shape every thought I think – until that anger ends, if it's lust, if my thought, if, if if my you know a, a lustful emotion, I want to satisfy my lust, and so my thoughts are through that. So the danger is when you come to something like what you would call worship. If you start with emotion, you're not being guided by the Spirit, because in the end, if I start off going, the most important thing here is unity. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to think about unity, but the Spirit says I'm going to tell you what you should be united with. And th- you have to start with the actual truth and the words of unity so you know what you should be united with. But if you say the most important thing is that we're united no matter what, all of your thoughts are going to be through the fact that we must be united and nothing can disrupt our unity. Well, guess what? There's plenty of times where God says you need to come apart from that. You need to become separate from that. And so if emotion is where you start, you're, you, you're not being led by the Spirit of God because you will be being led by whatever emotion you picked or whatever emotion started that thought, whereas truth will actually shape your emotions and let you have the correct emotional response. And that emotional response may be much more complex than it one that is just driven by the starting emotions, but we want the emotion. But when you do that, it is the antithesis of being led by the Spirit. Right. You look at, like, uh, Mary's response at the grave— right after she finds out that Jesus Christ was resurrected her response is is to be filled with fear and joy right i mean that's sure. kind of the point you see all of a sudden she sees more truth in the emotional response there's a re- emotional response but it's very complex right, right. start out going okay fear and joy go right and you're like you know i mean you know right. what i mean it's like how do you manufacture that but the spirit of god can lead you to that place and that's and that is that is key. Right. I mean, this may seem like sort of a silly example, but I, I worked at a summer camp for a couple of years that was a Christian summer camp, and it was very heavily intellectual. Students would spend about 80 hours over two weeks in a classroom setting hearing worldview lectures and so forth. And and the president of the, at the time said he was very strict about curfew he wanted the students to go to sleep every night because he said i don't want somebody to have what they think is a spiritual experience and it just, <laughs> it's, really just it's just the lack of sleep you know it's like because because he recognized those sorts of things can very easily happen in this setting so just go to bed I've maintained for years that part of the reasons why people have sort of either magical or not magical experiences in the hospital with their first baby is has a lot to do with how they respond to being exhausted. Because <laughs> there are people who they do not respond well to being exhausted, and they're like, my time in the hospital was horrible. The first time I held my baby, it was not magical. And the other people, they're like, it was transcendent. It was glorious. And it's like, and the truth is, is 
you love your child not based on this transcendent experience. But, but in the end, it's very easy for that to be driven by just your emotional state at the time or how you reacted to the medications they gave you. I mean, there's just lots of things, and it can cause you to think wrongly about parenthood because you're being driven by your emotions. And that's – it's like fake revivalism in a sense. And, and you know, if you are – ginning that up by having meetings run all through the night if you're having these 24-hour meetings you're gonna have people who are having spiritual experiences who are just sleep deprived yep i feel like i'm about to have a spiritual experience (laughs) (laughs) well played so i mean one thing that we've kind of touched on but i want to re-emphasize it is that in a real revival the whole purpose of of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory to God. In a real revival, that's the response. It's to bring glory to God. It's not about man. It's about God being glorified. And man is blessed by it. Man is convicted of sin by it. Man is cleansed by it. Man is saved by it. But it's about the glory of God. And too often we make revivals about other things, other feelings, other emotions. And it's... When it's about you rather than about God, it's not a revival of the whole, by the Holy Spirit. It's just it's just manipulation by men, including we manipulate ourselves right. to think that we've come in contact with God because we want to have that experience. And and the real respo- result of true revival is God's name is glorified, not just by singing praise choruses fifty thousand times because you have to fill twenty four hours, but like actually. True worship of God, true desire to know who God is, true desire to see your sin, true desire to repent, true desire to to bring glory to the name of God. I remember a, a, someone we went to church with for years telling me about he grew up in Pentecostal churches and said that he had seen people at services be slain in the Spirit. And he remember one day he saw the the man walking towards him, and he was going, this is it. It's going to happen to me. He said, and the guy reached over and he tapped him on the forehead and he said, nothing happened. He said, and then the guy came back and he pushed him on the forehead really hard and knocked him down and he landed on the ground and he realized, oh, okay, I got it. That's what this is. When he touches you on the forehead, you fall down. That's what you're supposed to do. And he's like, you know what I mean? And he's like his whole understanding of what, of how he should think about spiritual, you know, events was shaped by that moment. And like you're talking about fooling ourselves, this is, there's this part of it where there's a point where you go, I want to be part of something. Is this what's going on? And you either join in and say, this is a movement of God, or you say, I'm not feeling it. I'm not experiencing it. And you have to be aware, you have to be honest with yourself and go, you could be tempted to join in with something just so you can say you experienced it. And it's the power of that is really high. I mean, because say say you're somebody that's doing a blog post or something, right? And you go to this thing, and all these people are going, oh, praise God, praise God. Oh, I've never felt so close to the presence of God. And then you walk out, and you write a blog post saying God wasn't there. That takes a lot of guts to do that because other people are going, well, clearly you – you just don't know God, so you couldn't feel him because God was there. God was moving there. You just didn't feel him because of you. And so almost everybody that walks out, even the people that go, I'm really skeptical, they also go, oh, there was real peace there and really a feeling of transcendence there because they're not willing to go, 
wait a second, this doesn't look like a movement of God to me. Even the conservative ones aren't. And it doesn't mean being critical is the right thing to do. It just I mean, but it being I mean, honest is the right thing right, to do. And I'm right. just saying that that and I'm not accusing them of lying, but I'm just saying you have to recognize the level of pressure so much so that it's very easy for people to convince themselves that they're feeling it. <laughs> There's the old story about the king that, you know, in the invisible clothes and that everybody says, Oh yeah, I see them. I mean, there's a reason why that's that's a moral fable that people are supposed to understand and teach their children, because this is exactly what happens. And we shouldn't look at something like this and say, well, that has to be the Holy Spirit. That could be just a bunch of people who are afraid that other people are feeling it and they're not. So they're going to put on the show because they don't want to be left out. They don't want to look at, oh, you're you're the guy that's the non-Christian. The rest of us are saved here. And, I mean, and part of it is just a, a, des- a desire in the church that makes – something like this go viral um, to say we all need to be, you know, what's going on there? We need to know, uh, you know, because the Spirit of God is everywhere. It's not in one particular place. So whether it's uh, amazing, you know, work of the Spirit, whether it's just people deluding themselves, if we're not in that town in Kentucky, what does that have to do with us? I mean, we do, uh, there is a point where seeing how God is working is good. But I think the fact that you know, it's something that is, you know, such a major thing is 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 wanting, is desiring something that, and, a, and a, a, attaching certain um, value to a place and a certain moment in time at this place, rather than saying God's everywhere, God can work everywhere. I don't need to be so invested in this one thing happening in this one city in the world. I mean, I could, I can put a slightly more positive spin on it but I, I hear where you're coming from i could say hey look the, the country we live in is is pretty far from god there's a lot of darkness in it and so there's a genuine and right desire for the work of the holy spirit to happen and to become evident and if i let that desire run ahead of things and say okay you know maybe this is it and and be willing to accept cheap imitations for the real thing because I want that thing so much. You know, that's dangerous. Especially if you, I mean, again, this comes back to what are your beliefs are. If you, if you think that the Holy Spirit moves by bringing knowledge of God, then if you went there, let's say you heard somebody was preaching there and the preaching there was, was causing people to consider their sin. That could be worth going there to hear. I mean, you know, or I mean, you could, if you could stream it, you could say, I could listen to it and I can hear What's causing this? If your answer is, is if I go there and they're singing, it will cause me to turn from my sin. I don't think I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it says that. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it says. Maybe my, if you're you know, singing Psalms, <laughs> uh, right? You know what I mean? I mean, but I'm and, to, and that's what I mean is, is there is this part of it where, and I'm and I mean this in just a very literal sense is, what are you going there to be a part of? What are you going there to find? What are you what are you seeking? And if you're seeking a sign, if you're seeking some sort of power through some means other than what God says he brings those means by, there starts to be an issue there of why do you need to go there for that? And I do I think that's I do think that's a real part of it. Kind of like John the Baptist out in the wilderness, there are people who went there and some of them went there for not good reasons and john was able to touch them on the nose and then there's other ones that hey they end up baptized and there's and he's preaching the repentance of sins and they hear it he's like what did you come here to see right but but there's a fun that that there's a fundamental difference between these right because the people that were going out there 
they were going out there because they needed to hear John's message. Right. right? And what I'm seeing here is believers are going there, quote-unquote believers are going there because they want to encounter the Holy Spirit, and that's where the Holy Spirit is. That's like night and day different, right? Right. Because if you can't find the Holy Spirit where you are, you are not a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit abides in you is what the scriptures say. So why do you need to go to a city in Kentucky? And so that's what disturbs me is they're all fleeing to a city in Kentucky going, oh, we're believers. We want to encounter the Spirit. But Jesus Christ said the Spirit is in you. And so why do you have to go to Kentucky? That's a major problem. Right. I mean, it's like people who go to Jerusalem or and get baptized in the Jordan River. Well, not in Jerusalem. They go to Israel and get <laughs> baptized in the Jordan River because this is the Holy Land. This is where God was. So the, you know, this thing, you know, the Spirit must be at work here. When you know, there's by any measure, there's fewer Christians there than in the U.S. The fact, I mean, it's interesting for historical reasons, but it's not this holy place where you should get rebaptized. Yeah, we talked before about you know the Wesleyan holiness doctrine and just the you know they're like extreme Arminian, right? That you can actually do the work enough to become holy so that you're actually without sin. And you know, if the Holy Spirit moved there, what I would expect Him to do when when Moses asked God to show him his glory, he says, here's my glory. Before he shows him, he says, here's my glory. I will show mercy to whom I will have mercy. And I will show compassion to whom I will have compassion. And that's like the antithesis of the Wesleyan holiness movement. It's like the exact opposite of what they believe. And so in Romans nine seventeen through 21, it says, For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose have I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? It seems to me if the Holy Spirit was going to move at that university, with the doctrines that they've been teaching for well over a hundred years, the first, and they've had eight revivals already, <laughs> that one of the most basic things that he would teach, because the idea of the Holy Spirit moving is to bring glory to God, is he's going to reveal to them what God's greatest glory is, and that is he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. You want to talk about a revival? The revival is the growth in Calvinism since the 1990s. That's what a revival looks like, much more than what's happening at Asbury. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to do an episode at some point on the Young, Restless, and Reform movement because I actually think as much damage as there was that came out of it in one way, there's another sense where there, God used – obviously God used to strengthen his church, and it would be easy, it would be interesting to look at that as well because there's this part of it where – even where you have people adopt the doctrines of grace in a sense and then take them in wrong ways or, or fall away from them, God still used that to strengthen his church. God still used that to cause people to examine doctrine. That still God still used it to sanctify his people. And so I mean that I mean this is when you when we think about revival, I think we often think about it as this in this very short term sense. But there are these there are things that take ten, twenty, thirty years to to work out how God is using it to, you know, to sanctify his people. And, I mean, you just look, and it's so central to Christianity, like in Hebrews 4, is that you have to rest from your labors and rest in the finished work of God or you're not saved. 
and there's so much emphasis in the holiness movement of your own works. Your own, you're the one that has to bring you to God. You're the one that has to, that God does provenient grace to prepare a way so that you can then choose to walk in that way. But in the end, it's your work that saves you. And that's just, that's just contrary to the teaching of Scripture. That's just contrary the most basic ways. So I would expect if the Holy Spirit was moving there, they would convict them of the most obvious sin that's in front of them. Instead, what they do is Roman Catholics are comfortable going there. Pentecostals are comfortable going there. All different kinds of people that are comfortable going there because there is no truth. It's not about truth. And according to several students that are that are there and active there, and it looks like been tracked down that they really are students there. The, the homosexual there's a decent homosexual presence there that's active and you know among the people there that feels very comfortable being there and are not being if they're not being preached against. They're not. I mean, you know, in the end, I mean, well, the story I heard is that somebody wrote a very pro homosexual message on a bulletin board, and then that night somebody erased it, and then they put it back up because. They went, how can you be so mean to the homosexuals? And I know, I forget the guy's name, but there was one homosexual that was openly saying, you know, that he's one of the leaders of the movement, or the leaders of the the leaderless revival. Right. So you just, we want to see that there's a movement of the Spirit because we're we're not looking for a movement of the Spirit in our lives, so we want to act like there's a movement of the Spirit in Kentucky because we don't see it in ourselves. And the church needs to start looking for it where they are. And the way they look for it where they are is by reading of the Word of God. That's what David says over and over and over again. The Bible says that the world cannot see the work of the Spirit. But you see people here that are exalting this and saying this is the work of the Spirit. You know, it, Tucker Carlson did you know a thing on it. He's publicizing it. And Tucker Carlson doesn't have any evidence of knowing anything about who the Spirit of God is, and he's going, oh, this is the Spirit. When the world is saying, this is the Holy Spirit, instead of going, we hate you, that's not a good sign, (laughs) because the reality is the world hates the Spirit of God and is in rebellion to the Spirit of God and hates the people who have the Spirit of God, is what the Scripture teaches. In the same passage, it's saying why God gives you the Spirit. It also says that the world will hate you because it hated me. And so if we have the Spirit of God, the world doesn't respond and go, isn't this wonderful what God's doing? It actually goes, this is horrible and is in rebellion instead of rejoicing in it. And what we're really seeing with the stuff in Asbury is rejoicing in it, not, not saying it is, you're saying that homosexuality is wrong? That would cause a lot of people to, to the world to treat it very differently, going, this can't be the movement of God because they're rejecting homosexuality. You know, there's so many things that could be said there that would cause the world to hate, hate the movement, which would be what we should expect because they hated Christ. And it's, again, it's really key that this, the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit does lead you to divide from things. I mean, the Holy Spirit leads you to divide from yourself from sin. That's that's and one of the dividing from sin. He says, "I'll take a family of five, and two will go one direction, and three the other." I mean, it. It. He said, "I came to bring a sword." And the sword will go in the midst of families, it even says. And so this idea that, that, you know, that there's no division, that everybody's just singing kumbaya, that's, that's not the movement of God. That's not what it looks like. And then the other thing that, that whenever you see it, you should be concerned is the speaking in tongues. Because God is crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 14. 
Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. I mean, it's really clear. What you're saying there is you hear, from what I understand, there's more speaking in tongues than there is preaching of the word. Well, God makes it really clear. Speaking in tongues is for unbelievers. It's not the sign of a movement of God when people speak in tongues, even though you see it at Pentecost. But you see it at Pentecost because he's saying those people are unbelievers that need to believe. But isn't a revival about often unbelievers being converted? Often, but that's not what you're saying in Asbury. The people aren't going, I didn't believe and now I believe. They're not. That's not what I'm hearing any reports of at all. It's just people... They're going, oh, I have a new appreciation for God. I've convicted of sin. There were certainly at the beginning, there was a lot of conviction of sin. But you're not seeing a lot of claims of repentance unto salvation that I've heard. Which doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that there wasn't some true revival there, right? Which is what we started from the beginning is that looking at the general meeting, it has serious problems. But that doesn't mean that that certain people weren't revived there. Maybe the people who are getting saved are spending more time reading the Bible and less time posting on Facebook. That'd be good. But there's still a lot of people in there that aren't spending time reading the Bible. And some do, that are there. The <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they need to recognize what the tongues mean, I think is the real issue. They need to recognize what the tongues mean. And so we want, I mean, and, and I just see this, you know, in the Pentecostal movement everywhere in the world, you see this great desire for tongues, and they don't understand what it means. What it means is God speaking to unbelievers. He's saying, you're an unbeliever. That's what he did to Israel in speaking in tongues. He's going, you're unbelievers. And yet they want that over prophesying. They want that over preaching of the word. That's a big problem. I mean, at the end of the day, this is an opportunity for the church to exercise some discernment. It's the opportunity for the church to go back and say, what does Scripture say about revivals? What does Scripture say about the work of the Holy Spirit? And if we find anything attractive in what's happening at Asbury University, then, you know, is it attractive because it satisfies my desires for the way I want things to be, or is it attractive because it conforms to Scripture? That's really what it comes down to. And So as we consider revivals, and specifically the one in Asbury University, it's, it's worth considering what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both the Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What we really want in this country is a revival. But a revival, what you see is the power of God, and the power of God produces holiness. The power of God produces righteousness. The power of God produces obedience. And we want the wisdom of God, which requires us to know his word, to understand his word, to read his word, to study his word, and through the Holy Spirit opening our eyes and giving our hearts understanding, we can then apply his word. That's what we should desire. So often the church wants to seek after people raising their hands or feeling this movement or feeling peace and transcendence instead of real revival. Real revival is drawing nearer to God through knowledge, through understanding, and through obedience that's enabled by the Spirit of God. Thanks for joining us.
This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.